Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Let me ask you a question. You glad to be at church today? Not bad. Not bad. I won't ask again then. I'll take that response. Well, I'm glad that you're here. I hope you had a great week and a great weekend. If we haven't met, my name is Chris. I have the honor of serving as a senior pastor here at BT Church. I have the privilege of taking us into God's Word today. And if you have a copy of God's Word, either digital or physical, I ask you to meet me in the book of Exodus. That's at the beginning, second book of the Bible. Meet me in the book of Exodus chapter 1. That's where we will be today. As you turn there, let me do a few things. Let me again extend a welcome to our VIPs, our first-time guests in the room and online. Let's make some noise one more time for those VIPs today. So glad you're with us, and if you missed that earlier, if you would do us a favor and uh, text us, our our number is 97,000, type BTVIP, so uh, we can answer any questions you might have about our church. So thankful you're with us. We also want to welcome again our BT Online family. Let's welcome the BT Online family. And uh, as those of you that are here week in and week out, you know what I'm about to say. At BT, we believe in a cultural celebration. Amen? That was a chance for you to like clap and everything, but you failed miserably, so... Yeah, so make notes for next time when Chris says uh, that's a good time to cheer. So, no, we believe in a culture celebration, and, and, and we believe celebration is a discipline. It's too late. And, um, and like any discipline, you don't do it, you get bad at it, and we don't want to be bad at celebrating what God is doing. And so celebrate with me that so far this year, uh, 318 people have trusted Jesus as the Savior of their life, calling upon his name. And 189 people have gone public with that decision through believer's baptism. (laughs) Excuse me. Entering the baptistries of our campuses and making that decision. We call it believer's baptism because it's a decision that believers should make. After you place your faith in Jesus, we believe that you should go public with that faith through obedience and baptism. Uh, Being baptized in and of itself accomplishes nothing. Uh, Being baptized cannot make you right with God. You are baptized because by trusting in Jesus, you've been made right with God. And so we celebrate uh, what God is doing here at BT Church. You know, if you uh, were to study literature, and I know I'm geeking out early in the sermon, but stay with me. If you were to study literature, uh, common held belief is that there are seven types of conflict in literature that draw the reader in, right? Uh, Or if you don't read and you watch movies, shame on you. But if that's the case, um, Seven types of conflict, right? We, we want conflict because of a story or a movie with no conflict. It would, I mean, imagine Rocky Balboa fighting no one, right? Right? And, and so uh, as you look at the seven types of conflict, there is, there is person versus person, right? That makes sense. There's person versus self. There, there's person versus nature and person versus God. I mean, you, the, the seven of those, right? And the best writers or the best film producers... They, they don't just pick one, but they incorporate multiple layers of conflict to, to keep the reader engaged. Example, that would be well-known literary work that's become a Broadway hit, Les Mis, right? The story of Les Mis, the lead character, Jean Valjean, he's got conflict with himself. He's got conflict with the society that he lives in. He, he's got conflict with other people, and, and the layers of conflict in Les Mis has has been bringing in readers for for years now. Well, the book of Exodus, if that's kind of the metric by which people get brought in, the book of Exodus is a masterpiece of literature. It's got conflict all through it. You got people having conflict with themselves, with each other, with God. I mean, there's oppression. Like, Exodus is this amazing story. 
But the truth is, it's not just a story, it's fact. It's, it's history, it's, it's his story. The book of Exodus of God liberating his people from slavery is not some made-up tale. It is, it is the story of God's continued covenant-keeping ways. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to hang out together in the book of Exodus as we do a really high-level overview of one of the most famous characters in Scripture, Moses. We're going to spend five weeks doing a real high flyover of the life of Moses. And my prayer is that through the next five weeks, first off, put on your calendar, plan to be here every week. Amen? Rewind, replay. Next five weeks, plan to be here every week. Amen? And what I hope happens is that as we spend our time together and as you read on your own in Exodus is that I hope we learn some things about ourselves, right? That's how you grow, by the way. You you do the hard work of learning some things about yourself, the areas that you and I need to grow. And I I hope through these five weeks that we, we learn some things about our faith. But most importantly, I hope that we learn some things about our God because that's what changes things. You can know yourself inside out, upside down. You can know your faith, but if you don't know where your faith should be and how that changes you, then it's not really that beneficial. And so my prayer is we would come to, to know our God in a more meaningful and deeper way through these five weeks in the book of Exodus. Now, what I want to do before I jump in, and just fair warning, we are going to read a lot of verses today, all right? We're, we're going to read actually the entire first two chapters of Exodus together. And so before we jump in, I just want to lay some background work. Some of you may be familiar with the story. Some of you may not. The book of Exodus, again, all the conflict, it's been, it's been made famous in mainstream media. Some of you uh, may be a little bit, you know, seasoned in life. You may remember Charlton Heston playing Moses in the Ten Commandments. So those of you maybe uh, my generation, you might remember Prince of Egypt, right? Um, and then some of you may have seen the debacle that came out a few years ago, Gods and Kings. <laughs> Anyways, um, so, because it's a good story, but, but this is what happens, all right, right, here we go, we're going to go quick. When you pick up the Bible, when you go to Genesis chapter 1, we see the story of creation. God made everything, and the apex of his creation is humanity. He made God in his, he made people in his image. And, and at the creation of people, Adam and Eve, there is no separation between God and man. And just according to Scripture, it seems pretty evident that Adam and Eve were, were never going to die. But you probably know the story. They believed God was lying and Satan is telling the truth. Let that sink in. By the way, we still do that. And so they exchanged the truth for a lie, believing God was holding out on them. And in a moment, sin entered the world. And because sin entered the world, the New Testament tells us that it reigns in our mortal bodies. You do not become a sinner, you're born one. You're like, oh, well, that's not fair. Well, we chose it. God didn't. And so we are born with the sin nature, and, and then we grow in that sinfulness until we call upon Jesus, Lord willing, for salvation. So that's what happened. Sin reigned in mortal bodies. Adam and Eve had some kids, and one brother killed the other, right? I mean, I got four kids. I hope none of them kill each other, right? And it just kind of kept getting worse. You, you get a few chapters into Exodus, and God... He literally wipes out the planet minus one family. And this is where we get arrogant. Oh, God is so cruel. No, no, no. A holy God spared a sinful family. That's redemption. And so that's the story of Noah and the flood, by the way. And so humanity kind of starts over. But because Noah is sinful, we stayed sinful. And, and it's just a mess. And, and then we meet a guy named Abram. He became 
Abraham, he and his wife, they, they were past having the days of having kids. They're pushing 100. And, and then God blesses them with a child named Isaac. And Isaac has kids, and that kind of keeps going. And so now there's quite a few generations. There's a guy named Jacob. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Sound familiar, right? And Jacob specifically, he, he liked having kids. He had quite a few, actually, and um, whatever. So uh, he's got 12 sons. And the, 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 the 12 sons and their descendants become what's called the 12 tribes of Israel, which would become the nation of Israel. You with me? All right. So what happened was that one of Jacob's sons, his name was Joseph, and Joseph had dreams about how God would use him, and, and he maybe didn't deliver that in the best way because he told his brothers that they were going to worship him or bow down to him anyways. So younger siblings, maybe hold off on that. But um, So what ends up happening is his brothers decide to kill him, and then one of them, he, this guy, he was a real softy at heart. I mean, he's like, there's no way we can kill Joseph. Let's just sell him into slavery. I mean, you got to love those guys, right? And so they sold Joseph into slavery, and, and he just continues to be faithful. He finds himself in slavery. He finds himself in prison. But eventually, in the book of Genesis, Joseph is basically the prime minister of Egypt. He's, he's kind of second in command to the, to the king who we call Pharaoh. And there's this, this, this famine, but by godly wisdom, he prepared for it. So the people of Israel, they've got to come to Egypt to get some rations, and his brothers come, and they don't recognize his Joseph because he's blinged out like the you know, prime minister of Egypt. And, and then he does a little switcheroo on them, right? He's like, oh, you know, it's like Scooby-Doo. Remember when they pull the mask off? Like he takes the gold off, like, hey, it's me. And they're like, we're done for. I mean, this, that's baby Joe. We sold him to slavery. What's he going to do to us? But this great line in the book of Genesis, he says, don't worry, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. And so then Joseph's family is brought to Egypt and he reunites with his father and, and it's, it's really a pretty powerful story. By the way, that's 50 chapters right there. But going back to Abram, who became Abraham, God made a covenant, right? That's a, that's a deep promise that, that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. That's Jesus, by the way. You trace the lineage of Jesus to Abraham. The whole world is blessed through Jesus because anybody, regardless of race, nationality, background, can call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. But also he promised that his people specifically would have a land. Called out the promised land. So while things are going pretty well for, it, for Israel, at the end of Genesis, they don't yet have the promised land. But when we pick up Exodus chapter 1, as we'll see in just a moment, there's about 400 years that have passed, and there's a new Pharaoh in town. And the text tells us in Exodus 1.8 that that Pharaoh forgot about Joseph. So when we open up the book of Exodus, Israel is no longer kind of living large in Egypt. They're actually slaves. And the Israelites, they, you know, they, they seem to get this honestly. Jacob had a bunch of kids. They just keep reproducing, right? And Pharaoh's like, this is not good. There are more of them than us, and if they figure that out, we're in trouble. They'll, they'll partner up with a neighboring enemy and wage war against us. So let's really oppress them. So while that's happening, as we'll read in the text, I'm going to tell you about it, and I'm going to read about it. We're going to get this thing locked in, all right? What Pharaoh does is he says, listen, we, we've got to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. We've got to kill them. And so he tried to do that with the midwives, the, you know, the the women that were delivering the babies, like, just kill them, but they didn't do that. We'll talk about why. 
And so then he says, listen, I'm not counting on the midwives. Anybody who sees a Hebrew baby boy, throw him in the Nile, the river, right? Well, there's a woman and she has a son and, and he's beautiful and she can't bring herself to throw him in the Nile. By the way, new parents, if you're ever feeling like it, don't throw your child in the river. That's a bad idea, okay? And so she doesn't. For three months, she puts bows on him or something. She tries to hide the fact that he's a boy. But then it's like, you know, the gig is up. We can't do this anymore. And so she places the child in a basket, Hebrew word, an ark. Let that sink in. She places him in a basket and puts him in the Nile, but not real, not all willy-nilly, just, oh, let's see how it goes, you know, whitewater rafting. She places him amongst the reeds so he would be guided. Oh, and by the way, Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. Here's the child crying. Oh, what do you know? Moses' sister, by the way, newsflash, the baby was Moses. Moses' sister just happens to be there and says, hey, you need someone to nurse that child? Oh, that would be great. Oh, so then Moses' mom comes and nurses her own son. And so this is what's happening in the story. So now you have a Hebrew baby boy who was nursed by his mom and probably maybe was even told some things of his ancestry, but he grows up the grandson of Pharaoh. I'm not trying to add to the text. I just think he probably had a little bit of identity crisis. Who am I? Who am I? I'm part of these people that are oppressed, but I live this life. Probably, by the way, growing up in Pharaoh's court, maybe his mom had told him of Yahweh, the one true God, but growing up in Pharaoh's court, he also grew up in a polytheistic society. What does that mean? Many gods. And let me just say this, by the way. Some people, when I talk about that, they're like, oh, they get real mad. Like, Moses never committed a sin in his life. I, I'm not saying Moses worshiped many gods. I'm saying it's possible. You're like, that can't be. Listen, it doesn't matter what Moses did before he responded to God at the burning bush. What matters is he responded. Like, just based on history, Abram, the guy that became Abraham, the father of our faith, I don't, we don't know much about him, but based on where he lived, those people worshiped trees, okay? It's, it is plausible that Abram worshiped trees. And I, I said that one time in a sermon, and, and someone came up to me like, oh, you, yeah, Abraham, you can't say that. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Because when God spoke to him, he responded, and by faith it was counted as righteousness towards him. Beloved, you, you, listen, we're all, living, we're all living off course until we say yes to Jesus, and, and so, so Moses now is this Egyptian young man with a Hebrew ancestry. And as we'll read, he makes a decision one day that was not a good decision, I would argue, and he takes the life of an Egyptian taskmaster, and, and then he's forced to flee. I say all that to say, what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about how do we keep hope? How do we have hope in the unknown? You ever feel unknown in this world? Don't lie. Listen, you ever, you, ever, you ever wonder, the unknown, how high will inflation get? <laughs> What's going to happen to gas prices? What's going to happen to the workforce? What's going to happen to my retirement? Can you actually carry a negative balance in a retirement fund? You know? What's going to happen to the next election? What's going to happen to our society? What's going to happen to this? What's going to happen in my marriage? What's going to happen if I ever get married? Will I ever? What's going to happen to my child who's living like a prodigal? What's going to happen with the medical diagnosis I've received? What's going to happen in the unknown? Beloved, we live in the unknown. But those of us that have said yes to Jesus, we have this great tension that though we live in the unknown, we have the hope of the known, the certainty of that promise. So how do we balance that? Because so many times we as believers, we forfeit 
hope that Jesus has solidified. Listen to me. I'm not saying we disengage from society, but based on what I see in social media and conversations I have, it's all a matter of who's in office, whether or not we have hope. False. It's all a matter of what's happening in the economy, whether or not I have hope. False. It's all about whether or not I can ever find a spouse. False. Your hope is not in an elected official, but in a declared king. Your hope is not in the economy of this world, but the economy of heaven. Your hope is not in a temporary relationship, but in the eternal one of Jesus. And so how do we continue to be people of hope? That's what I want to talk about today. And so let's jump into the text again. We're going to read a lot. I'm going to basically read to you what I just said to you. But you're going to get a little more detail. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Verse 8, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power. In Egypt, he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And so the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built them Pithom and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shiphrah and the second whose name was Puah, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him, but if it's a daughter, she may live. Listen to verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God. Not the most powerful man in the the world, they feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt had told them, and they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, "This this is quite the rationale here. Why have you done this and let the boys live? Listen to their response. The midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. I'm going to leave that alone and keep going. And so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous. And since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile and let every daughter live. Chapter 2. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. And the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful... She hid him for three months, but when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket, ark there, for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. 
And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, listen, we, we, if we don't slow down, we will miss the full extent of, of the provision of God, right? Some of us know the story, like how powerful is it that Moses was spared because he was placed in a basket, right? That's amazing, but don't miss this, right? Joseph's lying to his brothers, what God meant for, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. See, Moses' mom, if things go according to plan, if there's not this evil king saying kill the boys, right, she's going to nurse this child. She's going, right, she's, that's going to happen. And, and now, while the enemy has, while Satan has used Pharaoh to try to thwart, you know, God's goodness, and he says, kill all the Hebrew boys, so now this mom potentially is going to face the possibility of not doing what she would have done anyways, and that's nurse her child, but now she's going to nurse her child, but it says this, then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, verse 9 of chapter 2, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. She did what she was already going to do, and as if you were here last week, you may have heard the story from Paul, and the devil paid for it. She got paid to do what she was going to do anyways. And so the woman took the boy and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Verse 11, years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. Translation, he was fearful of Pharaoh. And went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. Moses came to the rescue and watered the flock. And when they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he, he asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. And Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. I'm Just me personally, as my daughter gets ready to marry, I'm going to require a little bit more than shooing off some shepherds and feeding some sheep. But whatever works. And she gave birth to a son who named, whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. And after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help, because of the difficult labor, ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. So how do we have hope? in the midst of the unknown. Two things, real quick, here you go. Write this one down. You remember that you are secure in God's sovereignty. You and I, those of us that have said yes to Jesus, we are secure, we have rest in the sovereignty of God. Now listen, sovereignty is something we don't fully understand because we are finite beings. But God is infinitely sovereign, okay? And, and in the midst of of the unknown, when things seem hopeless, when things seem to be falling apart, we start by taking our rest in the security of God's sovereignty. Let me just make a few statements. God knows everything. 
all things are known to God. Now listen, that may not be encouraging because some of you in this room and online, you may be thinking, so you're telling me God knows what I'm going through. Like he knows that my marriage is barely hanging on. He knows how much I want to be married and am still single. He knows how much I want to have children. He knows how much heartache I have because my children are living wild. He knows how I'm barely getting by financially. He knows what the doctor has diagnosed me with. He knows the hole in my heart because of the loss of that loved one, and I'm saying, yes, he does. And you may think to yourself, well, if he knows, why isn't he doing anything? I will not be so arrogant as to presume the ways of God and that I understand them all. But if you'll listen to me for a minute, there can actually be hope in the unknown because while you don't know what you're going through, while you don't know how it's going to play out, while you don't know if it's going to drag on or let up, God knows. And that situation may be resolved tonight, or you may have to walk with that burden for months or years. And I'm telling you, listen, everybody's got burdens. Everyone lives in brokenness. It's only those that have said yes to Jesus and have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, they can have a hope to get through it. God knows all things. There is nothing that catches him off guard. And because God is gracious towards us, when we feel burdens because of the brokenness of this world, those burdens, if we allow them, will actually draw us closer to him. Think about the story. The Hebrew midwives were burdened because they were told to kill the Hebrew baby boys, and they said no. They feared God. What happened? God gave them families. Through a burden, they were drawn closer. Moses' mom had a burden. I don't want to throw this boy in the Nile. And so she didn't. And through that burden, God provided. And she got paid to do what she, what she would have done as a mom anyways. She got to, to be there for the early years of her son's life. The, the people of Israel, they groaned. They had a burden. It says God heard them and he knew. Now listen to me. Moses had a burden also. Moses saw his people being oppressed And in a moment of rage or anger or whatever it might be, he struck down an Egyptian taskmaster. Now, let me just tell you, Chris's commentary, I believe that was a mistake. He struck down the Egyptian taskmaster. And if we're going to agree that that was the right thing to do, I would just say that you probably shouldn't bury the dude in the sand. Like, have a better plan. (laughs) Moses was burdened. He took matters into his own hands instead of leaving them in God's hands. And the result, the midwives feared God. Moses feared Pharaoh. And so now he's on the run, leaving where he grew up, and he's in Midian. You say, how is this encouraging? That didn't change God's sovereignty. Now listen to me. We go through difficulties. We go through suffering. We go through the dark night of the soul. I don't know all the whys to that. Listen to me. I'm not going to try to claim to be theologically astute enough to, in the time frame that I have, explain this, which I couldn't anyways. God is aware of what you're dealing with. He knows your suffering and your heartaches. I personally don't believe that God has authorized all that suffering. Is he aware of it? Has he allowed it? He's sovereign. At the end of the day, we're going to have to say yes. By the way, he's God. But in this tension, while he may, while he may allow it and not authorize it, whatever, however you want to theologically figure that out, right? 
He's not unaware. And what Satan intends for evil, God will use for good. So listen to me, some of you are in a mess today, and just being honest, you got yourself there. Like, you didn't need any help. You, you got on the highway yourself, right? Some of you are in a mess, and someone else got you there. But in the grace of God, even when we get ourselves in the mess, in his sovereignty, he can redeem that if we will take our burdens to him. Moses got to Midian because he killed a dude, tried to hide it, did a bad job at hiding it, and then ran in fear, not of God, of man. How is God redeeming this? Come back next week. That's called a teaser, by the way. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 3. In Midian, God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. You see that? God used Moses' mistake, in my opinion, to get him to where he still wanted him. And so, listen, in the sovereignty of God, he, he can keep us, he can protect us, he can also get us back on track when we get ourselves off of track. How do we have hope in the unknown? We rest in the sovereignty of God to always be sufficient, that God will get us where he wants us as long as we will trust him in the process. We rest in the sovereignty of God to maintain hope in the hopeless. The second thing I want you to write down is this, how to keep hope in the unknown. You know that your rescue is always through God's remembrance. Our rescue, and God is a rescuing God, our rescue always comes through God's remembrance. The end of chapter two, we read this really terrible tragedy that the people of God groaned, that that actual word is shrieked, right? It's not even eloquent. They didn't even like, you know, make it kind of appealing. They shrieked, they groaned. And the text tells us in chapter two that God heard their groaning and God remembered, not because they groaned so well, not because they were annoying. He's like, I can't take it anymore. I need these people to be quiet. It says he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites and God knew. That word remember is a covenant word. This is a mouthful, but what that word actually means, it means to decide to act to fulfill that which was promised. You catch that? It's, it's deciding to act to fulfill that which was promised. God heard the groaning of his people. Now, it, hundreds of years had passed. Why now? God's sovereignty, right? But he heard and he remembered that which he had promised Abraham. And the good news for you and I today is that God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. He is in the business of remembering the promise he has made to us. I mean, this is for free, by the way. Those of you that are married or those of you that long to be married one day, remember that contrary to what culture says, marriage is a covenant and not a contract. And there are people, and you know, marriage is hard, by the way. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. A bunch of liars. <laughs> Marriage is hard, right? I've been married 20 years. One of my favorite things, this is, like, this is becoming one of my favorite pastimes. I love to meet young couples that are engaged, about to get married, and, and you talk to them, and they're like, oh, we got, we got it figured out. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> would you like to get on the schedule now for counseling six months later? You wanna... It's hard. It's challenge. And many times, unfortunately, in our society, marriage is not viewed as a covenant. 
acting upon that which was promised to be fulfilled, but it's a contract. This is no longer fulfilling me, so I'm out. And then what happens in counseling is people are remembering what the other one has done to them instead of remembering the covenant they made to that person. It doesn't mean we got, I'm not saying we don't got to deal with stuff. But if, but if we would remember as husbands and wives that we entered into a covenant before God most importantly, you hear that? The covenant before God is more important than the covenant you made with your spouse. Right? Here, here's shocking news. Marriage is not primarily about happiness. I'm not saying it needs to be this drudgery, by the way. It's, marriage, actually, is not primarily about happiness. It's about holiness. It's about whenever I feel like I'm not getting what I want, what I deserve, when I'm not getting treated the way, when, I, when all those things that a contract should provide for me, that not that I don't address it, communication is key, right? But at the end of the day, what I remember is not how much I've been mistreated, but the covenant I made to fulfill that which I promise, to be true and loyal until the day I die, okay? God, good news, does not change his covenants. He doesn't change. And so when we go through the dark night of the soul, when we go through difficult days, here is how we keep hope. We know that our rescue is not in our hands. It's not by our power. Our rescue is in God's continual remembrance of his children. Now, I know, listen, listen, I, I like it and you like it. We want to come here a sermon that's going to wrap up with one, two, three, do these steps, leave, and it's going to get better. Nothing wrong with application points. But beloved, sometimes, sometimes we don't need one, two, three, I can do this. We simply need a reminder that we cannot do this, which is why we need God to do it for us. We, we need a reminder that, 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 you know what, listen, I can't find chapter and verse. I w- really wish I could. That if you'll do A, B, and C, when you leave, it all gets better. I can't find that. Let me, let me just be like super encouraging Pastor Chris for a minute. You ready? Like this is, this is worth the price of admission, by the way. You may be going through a really difficult situation, and it may not end today. It might get worse. I, I pray that doesn't happen. But you may be in the thick of it. And here's the reality, right? We, we, we go through... We go through situations that are difficult, and in those situations, most of the most of the time, not, most of the time, those situations do indeed pass. I mean, th- this year I've gone through some of the most difficult situations in my life. For the first time in my life, I, I, I you know, I, I never doubted the reality of it, but I, I felt kind of anxiety in my in my spirit, and and I, I hated it, and I, I wrestled with it, and I, I, it affected the way that I functioned. And, and I felt this was never going to change. I was, I mean, you talk to my wife, I was not fun to be around. By God's grace and through my seeking of him and kind of getting back on track with spiritual disciplines, those feelings have primarily been lifted. But there's something, there's, there, there is something in front of us. And so what you're going through probably, maybe not, will, will pass. But there will be something else. And the rescue of God is not in the absence of suffering, but the promise of peace in the midst of them. It, it's that, and you understand how that's actually deeper than the absence of suffering? How do we have hope? Listen, we have gotten so conditioned as people with freedoms in our society to find hope in the temporary. 
And some of you feel that you are facing the unknown, and it, I'm not make light of it. It is serious, and you feel hopeless. And I just encourage you today, remember where your hope comes from. Your hope comes from the King of Kings. Your hope comes from the one who has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Your hope comes from the one who hung the stars in the sky, tells the wind when to blow. And you might feel in this moment that he's abandoned you, but I promise you he is not. One of the most well-known and respected pieces of literary fiction is J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. (laughs) There's always some. Hey, I've read them, I've seen them, okay? And it's, and it's a great piece of literature. And in the second book of the series, or the second movie, if you're lazy, whatever, um, in the second <laughs> book of the series, called The Two Towers. Now listen, not, some of you are grown adults, and you're going to dress up like Frodo next week. I don't remember it perfectly, so don't come at me, okay? But in the second book, there is this critical moment where the people of Rohan are going to be under attack by the orc army. Some of you have never read it or seen it. You're like, this is, this is something, it's something else. You need to watch it. And it is not good odds. The odds are not in their favor. But the, the, the men of earth, middle earth, right, the people, they've got this one kind of like trick up their sleeve. His name is Gandalf the wizard, right? Like orcs, those are bad dudes. But a wizard, I mean, that's always like, I think that's a one-up on an orc, right? And so they've got Gandalf. But as the battle is about to ensue, Gandalf, in this great moment, he kind of looks to the principal character of the trilogy, And he says this, he says, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And then Gandalf goes, right, he, that's, I'm out, peace, right? He he left. He's like, come on, you are not that old guy. I look across, I mean, it's bad. I mean, he's gone, peace out, right? The battle is about to get crazy, and the wizard is leaving. If I'm one of the people, I'm like, this is not good. And so they've given up hope, and again, this principal character, he says to kind of the leader of of Rohan, he's like, we've got to make a a last stand. And so I know I'm giving you a lot of detail here. They they decide to make this last stand. I mean, it's like the Alamo. We're all going to die, but we're going to go down swinging, right? And so they go to this fortress called Helm's Deep, and, and the battle starts to ensue. And, you know, it's great cinematography. It's great literature. But as you read it and watch it, like, they, orcs are winning. <laughs> but then there's this critical moment, and it's really powerful in the movie, where, where again, this principal character, he looks through this, this window of the fortress, and light begins to come through. And then you hear in the background the voice of Gandalf, look to my coming at the first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And then the scene cuts, and there's this beautiful hillside, and there's all these orcs, and they're just like wrecking shop, and people are dying. And then at the top of the mountain, there's Gandalf in a white robe with a white staff, on a white horse, right? Like you can't make the well, you can't make it up because Tolkien literally wrote it, but you know what I mean. 
And there he is like staff raised and you feel like suddenly all of the, the people are like, it is on. And you kind of feel the orcs going, mm, that's a wizard bad. And, and then he descends down the mountain and behind him is this army. And so I close with this. I will not presume to know what everyone's dealing with in this room and online. And I will definitely not make light of it. The number of people watching this service are those that will watch this later on. There are people that have just gone through a divorce that are going through one. There are people with medical diagnosis that are weighty and heavy. There are people that have buried a loved one. There are people currently out of work. There are people that are not making ends meet. There are parents with children that have gone crazy. There are kids with parents not seeking the Lord. There are people with just hearts of despair and a burden on their shoulders and they feel like all hope is lost and everything is unknown. How will we ever get through this? And it is my prayer and our prayer together. By the way, this is why community matters, that we band together and we pray that God would relieve those burdens and lift those burdens. But listen to me, listen to me. God has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. And there is hope even in the unknown and that burden may get lifted tonight. It may get lifted tomorrow. You may carry part of that burden until you take your last breath. But Revelation chapter 21 tells us that the one who's made everything is gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. He is going to make sure death is no more, pain is no more, sickness is no more, because he will have completed making all things new. And it's not some white wizard coming down a mountain. It's the king of kings parting the sky, coming for his people. And I fear that we've become so conditioned by a temporary life that we've forgotten the promise of eternal. I pray the burdens we carry would be lifted. But even if we carry them to that day, Jesus has promised that one day all the brokenness has to cease. And he has not forgotten you. He has not overlooked you. He's probably refining you through the pain that you're going through. But no matter how bleak it gets, don't let the enemy cause you to believe that you've lost and he's won. Jesus wins. And when our lives belong to him, when they are hidden with Christ on high, it's not that we avoid, it's not that we avoid all the difficult days. It's that in the midst of them, we band together in hope. In the midst of them, we cling to that which has been promised. The people of Israel groaned. We've been slaves for four centuries. What happened to the promise? And in the right time, God heard and he remembered. And that remembrance was the intention to act, to fulfill the promise that he had made. Your next step, it may be just to keep groaning today. Just keep groaning. Keep crying out to him. Those of you in this room, in just a moment, we're going to worship. I, listen, I get it. Sometimes when we're going through it and we come to church, that there's part of us, the last thing we want to do is sing. We're like, Argh. I'm mad at God right now. I don't want to sing about him. But don't miss this. That worship is a, is a tool to reignite hope in the unknown. It, 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 it's... It's a piece of 
of weaponry and, and warfare and, and even, listen to me, when you show up and everything's going great, right, you got all the green lights on Trenton and, you know, you, you, you got lunch plans and money in the bank and you show up and you raise your hands, that's great. But when you hit all the red lights, when you got all the bad news, when everything's falling apart and you show up and you still say, I trust you, that's when in the heart the Spirit starts to forge something. And so we're going to do that. We're going we're to spend some time letting God forge in us. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And if you're in this room, you can come forward and this altar's open and we'll have prayer ministers. If you're watching online, you can reach out to us and message us and we want to pray for you. Maybe for someone, here's what you need to think about. What are you doing with your burdens today? We have this tendency to keep them. And Jesus says, come to me all who are weary, tired, and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, but we've got to come to him. He does not impose himself. Take my burden upon you. Like, that doesn't sound good. No, take my burden upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why do, we, why do we hold on to him? I'll be honest, you know why we hold on to him sometimes? Because we think by holding on to him, we can decide how the story goes Part of releasing them is you give Jesus authority. By the way, he's already got it. He didn't need you to give it to him. Recognizing his authority doesn't change the authority he has. It changes the way it affects your life. So maybe for some, we need to just release some burdens. Trust God in the midst of brokenness. Spiritual disciplines, they, they propel us, by the way, on a trajectory to be able to maintain hope in the unknown. That's why, listen, that's why I say it every week. Be in the Bible you don't know what to do, pick up the book of Exodus. Read chapter three this week. Get your homework done, right? Ha have a prayer life that you're not just thank you, God, for the food or now I lay me down to sleep, but like cry out to him. Enge engage with the family of God, corporate worship. Go beyond this. Choose community. Practice fasting. Get serious about the disciplines of God that will build you up ready to face the unknown and to keep your hope. Obedience, obedience keeps us moving forward. Listen to me, Listen, there is someone in this room or online, you've got to quit playing games. You may have everyone fooled, but you don't have God fooled. And it's not that he's out to get you with lightning bolts, it's that he has life to the fullest and you're restricting it, he's not. And so confess that addiction to that substance, get some help, if you could do it on your own, you would have by now. Walk away from the junk online, tell someone about it, get some help. Stop the flirtatious relationship that hadn't gone too far yet because it will. Be obedient in what he's called you to be obedient in. Some of you, you've said yes to Jesus, and for some reason you haven't said yes to baptism. That's an act of obedience. It's not a means of salvation. It's gratitude for it. But maybe someone in this room or online, what you need to happen to you today is you need to go from death to life, from hopeless to hopeful, from unknown to known. Because without Jesus, it is hopeless. It just, it's just hopeless. And the weight of the unknown will crush you. But Jesus has died to give you life and life to the fullest. And that's the promise of eternity that when he parts the sky, he's coming to take you home. But that's also the promise that until that day gets here, he is with you.
And so today, if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, I wanna give you the opportunity to call upon him and to receive the gift of salvation. It is not religious work, it's relational identity. So I'm gonna ask you in this room, if you're watching online, bow your head, close your eyes. And today, if you wanna say yes to Jesus and receive new life in him, I invite you to say this prayer with me. The prayer is not a magic formula. Please don't mindlessly recite words. Maybe you come here often, you think every week if you say this prayer enough, it'll stick. That's not how it works. We're told in scripture to believe in our heart, confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, and then we are saved. It's a transaction that's complete. The righteousness of God applied to your life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you understand that and you want that today, right where you are, heads bowed, eyes closed, say this prayer with me. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm far from you and I'm hopeless without you. But I believe you made a way for me to be made whole. I believe you sent your son Jesus to come to earth. I believe he lived without sin. I believe he died on the cross and he paid for sin. And I believe three days later he rose again in victory and he defeated it. And so Jesus, today I trust you with my life and I ask you to be my savior. Thank you for loving me first. It's in your name that I pray, amen.